Okay, so question 152 of the larger catechism asks, what does every sin deserve at the hands of God? And the answer is that every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against his righteous law, deserves his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. Which leads us then naturally to our starting question, 153, which asks, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse do us by reason of the transgression of the law? And the answer is this, that we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of the law. He requires of us repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. And here's the key verse of this question. This is going to be from Acts 20, uh, verse 21 especially, but I'll read from verse 17. This is a, a key verse that gives us some of these ideas. And it's Paul um, at Ephesus speaking to the church. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, this is the Apostle Paul, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith, key elements of the Christian life. And as we consider these, let's ask God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a way of escape for your people, that though we have transgressed your law, we've not loved you with our whole hearts, we've not loved our neighbors as ourself yet, you and your mercy provided a way of redemption, salvation, and um, a way to eternal life. So we thank you for that, Lord, and as we consider Christian spirituality this semester, would your spirit indeed be working in our hearts, enlightening our minds, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, for whose sake we ask these things. Amen. So we're talking about the way of escape from the wrath and curse of God due to sin. So it's saying that we may escape this. When we're talking about escaping this wrath and curse, what are we talking about? Really, the best word for that is salvation. And, you know, we think of the word salvation and it kind of, I think, sometimes just becomes a Christian word we use. But if you actually think of it, salvation is being saved and you're being saved from something. You're being uh, rescued or we often use the word um, redeemed. Um, that you are bought back, delivered, deliverance, redemption, salvation. These are all getting at this key concept that we were once in bondage under sin, enslaved to sin, the scriptures would say, and that there is a way of being freed, a way that comes of salvation through the work of Christ. And we often think of salvation in only past tense terms. Um, when did you get saved, you might ask. But it's really important to remember that salvation encompasses all three tenses. And you can think of it in this way, that in the past, the believer has been saved from the penalty of sin. 
that is, that penalty and punishment that's deserved. But in the present, the believer is currently being saved, that is, being delivered from the power of sin in our life. That's sanctification, that sin's grip on us is getting weakened, and the Spirit's um, work in us is being enlivened and vivified. But there's also, um, and this is actually the main way the New Testament speaks of salvation, is the salvation to come, which is going to be final salvation from the very presence of sin in our life and in our world. Life in the heavens, the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So salvation is a very holistic concept that really does encompass all the Christian life. And so we attain this salvation, this means of escape, through Jesus Christ, the one who accomplished our redemption, and who applies it to us by his spirit. And there are two concepts in Reformed theology when we think of how does Christ bring us this salvation. Um, two aspects of his work that are important to remember. We call this Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. Okay, two, two good words to keep in your mind when you think of what Christ did for us. Active obedience and passive obedience. Now, Christ's passive obedience is referring to what he did on the cross. Um, when he was on the cross, punished for our sins, receiving the just punishment of God, um, we, call, we call it his passive obedience. Not that he's really passive there, but what the passive obedience of Christ accomplishes for his people is forgiveness of our sins. That in taking the punishment of our sins, he provides a way, as Colossians 2 says, for the debt of sin that stood against us to be um, erased, right? Like if you had a debt in your bank account, Christ's passive obedience pays off your debt. But we recognize that it's not good enough to just have your debt paid off. God actually requires of us perfect holiness and righteousness in order to attain his salvation. And therefore, we confess that we also need Christ's active obedience, which refers to his entire life where he lived perfectly, where he never once sinned, but always loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved his neighbor as his self. So if Christ's passive obedience provides for our sins to be atoned for, his active obedience is that whereby his righteousness, all his good deeds, are imputed to us and are credited to our account. So not only are the debts in our ledger erased, but also our account is topped up to the infinite fullness of Christ's perfect work. And with debts erased and righteousness um, credited, we have everything we need to be saved. This is the great salvation Christ accomplishes for us. Salvation in the past, but then also he grants us the spirit to continue that work of salvation in the present. And then he guarantees the Holy Spirit's our seal, Ephesians 1 says, until we reach that final salvation, when we'll be once for all brought into the kingdom of God. And this is a gift. And so what comes here importantly is the question is, what is the condition by which we find this salvation? Okay, and a lot of people struggle with this idea that there are conditions on salvation because it sounds like a work that we do. That's not the case. The condition of salvation is faith and repentance. Repentance and faith are the two conditions for someone to find salvation in Christ. These are not properly works. Only Christ's works save us. But salvation or faith and repentance are like the two hands that are held out that receive the gift 
of salvation. They are not the grounds of it, but the means of reception. Uh, Just like if you were given a bursary to go to college, you didn't supply any of the money in the account that pays you the bursary. You you sign your signature on a piece of paper um, that is your acceptance of it. And in that way, faith and repentance are like the signatures that go on the deed of salvation. And even still, we don't get credit for faith and repentance. We know that um, Ephesians 2 tells us that even faith itself is a gift of God. And faith and repentance only come up in our hearts because the Holy Spirit is first working in us to do them. Yet, faith and repentance are still the conditions that have to be met for this salvation to be received by the believer. But faith and repentance are not themselves meritorious. God doesn't say, oh, you have faith, now you deserve salvation. No, it's still, even a perfect faith and repentance would not merit you salvation. It's still gracious that God gives it based on those causes. Only Christ's righteousness is the ground of salvation. Any questions so far? Yeah. Can we add to Christ's imputed righteousness on us? Probably not, but like when we're sanctified, we do yeah. Yeah, Christ's work is perfect. His obedience is infinite, so you can't even add one, really, to infinity. But um, we can still be more or less righteous in our own deeds, but we, we don't need to fill up a salvation account with them. Um, our righteous deeds are probably more crediting to our personal joy account, right? When you live in God's ways, you do have a more joy-filled life. Um, but, but yeah, we're not worrying about adding on to what Christ has done because it's perfect. And yet, even our righteousness, temporally, God does still reward in heaven. Um, So it is still, it's not like God doesn't notice our good deeds. God delights in them and blesses us for them. But we still have perfect salvation. You just mentioned that um, that even faith and repentance, they're a gift from God. How do you address the person that then just sits back and says, you know, I'm just going to, sit here and wait for God to save me. Yeah, that's a a particular problem in Reformed churches that um, confess these doctrines of grace. And um, the problem is is that um, people often try to make up their own logical implications from what they think doctrine teaches. But we have to obey God's word, um, not what we think some logic problem would lead us to. And God's word calls us to exercise faith and repentance. And we are obligated to do that. But we confess that God's sovereignty works through secondary causes, and it works through means, which is really everything we're going to be getting into, is that God brings about faith and repentance through outward and ordinary means, like the word and prayer and the sacraments. And therefore, it is um, incumbent upon us to attend upon all the means. And God ordinarily works through means. And so I think that betrays almost an inappropriate mysticism that thinks that God works in our hearts in some spontaneous and unknowable way. When you say, God works through means, therefore make use of the means. Oh, and we're actually going to get more into that in a little bit. Um, faith and re- repentance... Um, you can consider them almost as 
different sides of the same coin. And uh, some people might disagree with me on this, so that's fine. If you disagree, this is fine. I believe that faith and repentance are the same metaphysical act. What I mean by that is in the heart, um, the same action is happening, just viewed from a different perspective. So repentance is often thought of as turning away from sin. It's a turn of mind, a change of life. And, repent, and faith is a looking unto God, a turning towards God. And if you use those images, you can see how the same act is. If I was going this way and I turn around, I am both turning from something and turning towards something. And you might be thinking primarily, your mind might be occupied at one moment on, oh, that is fearful, that is awful, I need to leave that. And if that was your main motivation, we're calling that repentance. But perhaps you're thinking, man, there's something so beautiful over there, something so wonderful, and you are turning because of that, that's a faith-based motivation. But every act of faith, every act of choosing God is an act of rejecting what is not of God. Every act, similarly, of rejecting the things that are evil is also an acceptance of that which is good. And in salvation, some people are primarily um, drawn by faith or repentance. Some people, they feel in conversion really heavily um, the, the debt of sin against them, and they are fleeing from it to God. Others more feel just an overwhelming sense of the love of God and the grace of Christ, and they turn to that. And if yours is leaning more towards one or the other, I don't think you need to worry that you didn't have the right um, amount or percentage of each, because true faith does include true repentance. And you, you hear testimonies of people that God works in different ways, and there can be some problematic ideas when people try to um, turn conversion to a schematic, that you need to feel about this much fear, you need to feel about this much grief and guilt, and only after you've filled up the percentage of repentance can you then start exercising faith in Christ. That's a big problem, especially in conservative Reformed churches, that you're not allowed to even try to trust in Christ until you feel this certain level of lowness in your spirit. Um, the passage of the New Testament, when they talk about salvation, sometimes they only talk about faith and Christ. Sometimes they actually only talk about repentance. And one of the only passages, passages that mention both at the same time is that verse from Acts that we read, where Paul testified of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can't overly um, try to dogmatize the order of how we come to faith. But God works in mysterious ways. But faith and repentance, that is the heart that is converted. A heart trusting Christ, a heart fleeing sin. Now, faith and repentance, as kind of Pete was alluding to, there are these invisible realities in the heart that we can't conjure up or control. And that's why God has seen fit to connect these invisible realities to visible realities, to ordinary and outward means. And so um, we continue in our answer that he requires of us repentance towards God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. Consider in many other ways in life as well, 
Most benefits, good things, they come by the use of means, right? If you want to be a learned person, you need to give yourself to those ordinary trying means of study, of sitting in lectures, of working on papers. If you want those internal sort of invisible benefits of good health, you need to give attendance to diet and exercise and rest. And if someone says, well, I just really want health to come to me, you say, no, there's a way by which health comes. Um, you don't just wait for it to appear. And so it is with the things of the Spirit, is that both faith and repentance, a heart that is given to God, that heart is brought about and nourished by diligent use of what the Catechism calls these outward ordinary means, means that we need to give attendance to. And so question 54 asks, you can look at those little sheets there if you have them, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the salvation or to the elect for their salvation. And here's the key verse for this question. Acts 2, 42, and then 46 and 47. This is what the early church was all about. When they saw rapid, dramatic growth, this is what they're told, were told they were devoted to. The church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There you have it. Word, prayer, sacrament. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, God blessed this ordinary use of the means of grace, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. God added to their number daily. And so here we have three primary ordinances, things that are ordained by God to nourish and to produce faith and repentance and bring about salvation. Simply, word, prayer, sacrament. You might think of these as like, uh, do you remember learning in school the three primary colors, uh, which, which, correct me if I'm wrong, are red, blue, and yellow? Is that right? Okay. Does anyone know what are like the computer three primary colors? It's like cyan, magenta, and yellow? Yeah, sweet. Okay, three primary colors. And the cool thing about the primary colors, like you can mix them together to kind of make any color. And um, so it is with uh, the three ordinances. Sometimes they combine in different ways and create um, other elements uh, that are not necessarily directly those three, right? So you might think of something like singing of praises. Our songs are usually a really nice mix of word and prayer. Sometimes our songs are declaring truths about God. Sometimes they're making requests of God, and sometimes both. So singing is a, is a beautiful color of ordinance in that it mixes word and prayer in really pretty ways. Um, the word often attends the sacraments in a very particular way. Prayer attends in a particular way. And so you get these different shades and hues, and um, it might be different privately versus corporately. And so anyways, but we have three primary colors, word, prayer, and sacrament. And just as you can think of, you know, diet, rest, and exercise produce health in the body, so word, prayer, and sacrament produce health in the body of Christ.
And so these are called in the catechism outward and ordinary means of grace. Okay, so each of those words are important to understand. They're called outward means because these are not just internal realities like faith and repentance, right? There's no such thing as an outward faith and repentance, right? That's false. It's only internal, internal that's real. But the outward things, really praying with words coming from your mouth, um, hearing a word that is preached or read, taking some bread and wine, seeing the water poured. These are outward things that are meant to nourish these inward realities, outward things that produce inward consequences. They're outward, but they're also called ordinary means, not because they're not special, but because this is the normal way that God works, right? So you might have heard, say, stories of God appearing to Muslims in dreams, bringing to them salvation. That's not an ordinary way God works. God ordinarily works through um, word, prayer, and sacrament. And so we ought not wait, again, to Pete's question, wait for some extraordinary work of God where there's some mystical encounter where we are brought into the spotlight of some internal revelation. No, it's these outward and ordinary means that is God's normal way of working. And that's why it's so important. And we confess that we raise children in the church, not just waiting and leaving them be until God does what he'll do, but we bring them up praying with them, reading God's word with them from the earliest age, because we know that, that oh, those are the means that God uses to bring about salvation in his own time, in his own way. And we don't need to look for these dramatic conversion experiences because God um, works salvation often as a seed comes forth from the ground, um, little by little, sometimes almost imperceptibly. They're outward means, they are ordinary means, and um, thirdly, they are means of grace. So you might have heard this term in our circles, the means of grace. I remember I was talking to my mom a year or two ago. She's like, I've never heard this term, means of grace. Uh, so apparently not all church traditions use this phrase. But that is saying these are the means by which God works grace in us and gives us his grace unto salvation, whether for the first time or our growth in sanctification or unto the end. Um, and not as the Catholics teach that he's like infusing this actual metaphysical grace into our being, but he is in his goodness um, communing with us, building us up by the Spirit. And they are called ordinances, thirdly. Ordinances of God. That means that these three things are things that God has ordained. These are means that God has set in place, right? We don't use the term ordained that much in culture anymore, but um, we ordain ministers, right? That is, we set them apart and say, you are chosen to this task. And in a similar way, these are three means that God has set apart and set his seal on to say, these are the things that will nourish salvation, and that's important, okay? So in the Reformed tradition, we have a doctrine called the regulative principle of worship. Um, has everyone heard of the regulative principle of worship? Maybe, probably not. Okay, so what this doctrine teaches is that when it comes to worship, when it comes to having grace from God, we can only do those things that God has given us explicit warrant in his word to do. Okay, why is this important? What, where this comes from is we're saying God is God and we're not. And therefore, God, because he is so much greater, so much superior to us, 
He alone has the right to tell us how we ought to approach him. He alone has the right to tell us how we ought to please him. Right? We even recognize that um, a, a king or queen, um, they, they kind of call the shots on how people approach the throne or whatever, um, who can come, and people don't presume upon um, their ability to just go into the king's courts and do whatever they want. They come on the king's terms. And so in our humility before God, we confess to God, we don't know a right how to honor and worship you. We'll probably get it wrong. Therefore, we wait for you to tell us how you want to be worshiped. And that's what the second commandment teaches when um, it's not just saying don't worship the false gods of idols. The first commandment says to not worship false gods. The second commandment says not to worship the true God falsely. That is, God said, I am not going to be worshipped by the use of idols and images the way other gods are. He said, that is not a tool in your worship toolbox. God does not want to be worshipped by images. Uh, The Christian religion is preeminently a communicative religion, not a visual religion. Uh, The only images God has given us are those of the sacraments, uh, the bread, the wine, and the water. But other than that, it's very simple and largely based on communication. God didn't want to be worshipped by uh, carved images. He could have if he had wanted to, but we didn't get to call that shot. And so by extrapolation, we want to be aware that we, don't, that we aren't inventing modes of worship that God hasn't given us warrant in his word to do. Um, Thomas Ridgely, who comments on this catechism, says this about ordinances. The ordinances are religious duties prescribed by God as an instituted method in which he will be worshipped by his creatures, to which he has annexed his special promise of his presence and given encouragement to hope for the blessings with which accompany salvation. Any comments or questions? Okay, so lastly, this answer says that these means are made effectual to people for effectual to the elect for their salvation. So that is to say, using these means, they actually work. They actually produce an effect, namely salvation, the greatest gift. Right? How amazing that God uses these ordinary means, just communication communication to God, to one another, to work about eternal salvation. Um, they just work. Uh, That's one of the things I love about uh, Apple products. Uh, My iPhone, when I had it, I I now regret not having it. And uh, MacBook is like, it just feels like it works, at least to me. I just feel like they just work, and that's what I like about them. And God's means, they work. They always work to bring about his purposes, his purposes of salvation. Okay, so if we're considering, and we're going to go into each of these ordinances in in detail as we go through. I don't know how many we'll get through. It starts off with the word of God, ends with prayer. I doubt we're getting to prayer, but we'll probably cover the word of God, maybe get into baptism, probably not the Lord's Supper. We'll see, but these are the means God has given us. Okay, so by way of application, what does this mean for us? Okay, it means a couple things. It means, one, that we don't need to depend upon uh, slick gimmicks and tricks when it comes to evangelism. God's word, prayer, 
these things work. We don't need to try to reinvent the wheel and come up with what will reach this generation. What Can we have like a bouncy Jesus castle that'll like get them saved and come up, invent all these new things. Um, I know pastors who are like, oh, we should... Um, like use Doritos and Pepsi for the Lord's Supper because it's more relevant. Uh, We don't need to mess with God's ways and try to invent things that are better because God's ways work. We also don't need extraordinary measures for sanctification. Um, We use the tools God has put in our toolbox and we can only really trust for success using God's methods. And so... Here are five, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, here are five means that we often use or have been used in the history of Christianity um, to to try to accomplish God's purposes, either of initial salvation or ongoing sanctification or final salvation. And we need to watch against relying on these sorts of means, okay? So there's the danger of using what we might call mystic means. Some people, especially in Eastern Christianity, considered that the way to God was through trances and um, contemplation and a relinquishing of the self to be raptured up into an experience of God, a direct, immediate experience, a direct, immediate experience of God. We're not called to use um, the means of mysticism, trances, um, um, contemplative prayer, these sorts of things. It's word, prayer, sacrament. Um, There's also a danger of using artistic means. Um, We know particularly idols out of call, but also the church has fallen into using icons throughout its history that if we have a beautiful enough picture of Jesus, we worship God through that. Not a tool God's given us to grow in grace. Or even art. I grew up in uh, churches where um, during the worship service, there was artists on stage painting what they called prophetic pictures that were meant to minister to us through art, not a means God's given us. We also have to watch out. The church has fallen into in its history into what we might call ascetic means. That is, these are um, strict disciplines of the body. Um, even Christian churches have fallen into like self-flagellation, actually like whipping yourself, that um, and in the pain identifying with the sufferings of Christ. Um, voluntary vows of poverty common in the Catholic Church, that this is a means you get close to God by selling all your possessions and just being poor, actually begging. There were some sects that were all about, you had to be a beggar to be this sort of monk. Um, Voluntary vows of singleness, also prominent in Catholicism, that they say the way you get close to God is by not marrying. And then also, and this one can have a good or bad side, but um, what I might call superstitious fasting. Fasting that thinks that by just virtue of doing the fast, you are getting closer to God. Um, I don't know if we'll cover fasting later. Fasting is a means unto word and prayer. Um, It is not a worshipful act in and of itself. Um, There's also heroic means. So some think that, um, say in Islam, you have to do a pilgrimage to Mecca, this one great thing in your life. Some think that to get really close to God, you need to go on frontier missions or do something big and heroic. Not means God has instituted. And lastly, um, what we might call historic means. And that is particularly those of the Jewish law that God has done away with. We don't worship God by animal sacrifices. 
or keeping the Jewish feasts. I also knew people growing up who were really big on keeping the Jewish feasts, um, having cedar meals, practicing the Feast of Booths to try to keep continuity. But God's clear in the New Testament that these are done away with and are no longer means by which we are called to draw close to God. So we want to watch the danger of using means to grow in grace that God has not prescribed for us to use in his word. Uh, Secondly, by way of application, is we want to be aware of the danger of trusting the means. Okay, this is really important. We trust in Christ, not the tools that God has given us to know him through Christ. And the danger here is one of superstition. And superstition pops up everywhere in the church. And this is inscribed by doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. They have a doctrine called um, ex opera operato. And that is saying that the means work by virtue of their use. So it says, regardless of the godliness of the minister praying for someone, regardless of the faith of the recipient, just by virtue of taking the Lord's Supper, they are going to be infused with grace. We confess that these means only work in us when tied to faith. Um, Taking the Lord's Supper does nothing for you if faith is not active in your mind and heart. And any time we attend church and think that we're just going to get a blessing by being in the building, that's us treating God's work superstitiously, thinking that they just work by virtue of their use, not by virtue of faith. Every time you pray before a meal without actually praying in your heart, you're praying superstitiously. And we need to watch out for that. And similarly, we also need to be aware of formalism. Um, similar uh, to superstition, but on the flip side, um, not caring, just going through the motions. And um, yeah, merely repeating these tasks that we do again and again. Um, We ought not trust in the means, but we also not just go through them formally. And which is similar to the last danger is that of neglecting the means. Now, if these are the means God has given us for salvation, we neglect them only to our eternal peril. We, so we need to watch out that, that we don't neglect and um, despise these simple, ordinary means God has given us. I know so many people have said, I don't really need to go to church. I just, everything that happens there, I kind of already know everything the pastor says. Um, I don't like the songs, whatever. There's a grave danger neglecting the means that God has instituted for salvation. It's kind of like um, to neglect, if you have all your heart, arteries in your heart are clogged, to neglect the surgery that'll bring them, um, that'll bring you life, right? That's initial salvation. But then if the doctor has prescribed you heart medication that you need to take every day in order to keep the blood flowing, you neglect that to your own um, corruption. And similarly, it's like if you're a believer, you've had a heart transplant, but we need to take this medicine of God's means every day that we keep the blood um, of Christ, his life, the spirit flowing within us to commune with him and actually grow in spiritual health. So we neglect these means to our own peril. And so in conclusion, um, God's ways are wise. He's wiser than we are. I don't know if I would have thought of word, prayer, and sacrament if I was creating a religion. And God is worshipped in spirit and in truth in these ordinary means that we're about to go and participate in. And we know that God especially has promised to bless these means of grace 
in corporate worship. Um, the corporate uh, worship of God's people is the main place where these means are most blessed unto salvation and unto spiritual growth. So, good on you for being at church this morning. We need to be together to worship. And so, as we go to worship, we remember this, that this is how God nourishes and strengthens us. Therefore, we want to engage the attention of our minds and the affection of our hearts, applying them to both word and prayer and sacrament when it arrives, that we might be nourished and strengthened in God's ways. Amen? Amen. Um, We've got time for one question, if someone's got one. Alrighty, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you work extraordinarily in our hearts through such ordinary means. Thank you that you're not um, inaccessible. Thank you that we don't have to make some pilgrimage halfway around the world just to meet with you, but that your word is near. It's in our mouth and in our heart, the word of salvation that is proclaimed. We thank you that you work through it by the Spirit. We thank you that you've preserved our word and given it to us for our spiritual and eternal good. And would you help us never to neglect these simple means of grace, but to pursue you, the knowledge of you in your word, in prayer, by your sacraments, um, as we can every day throughout our lives. Lord, so would you bless our time of worship even now? We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.